podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. On Tuesday, the 19th of January, the weather outside is only fit for ducks, so you might as well be listening to me. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com, an association representing sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A VPN is a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online and change your location. For example, if you want to access American Netflix and see some of the shows that are on there, but not on the UK or Irish version, it enables you to do that. It will also keep your data safe online, keep you safe from hackers and ne'er-do-wells who might be out trying to scam you or hack into your data. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. Home of Hopcroft is a home and giftware company located in Scotland, shipping worldwide at very favorable rates. Do check out their services at homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Really good stuff on the website. Right, folks. Um... It's Tuesday. Last night was Monday. That's how the week works. And Newcastle travelled to London to play Arsenal. And they might as well not have bothered. (laughs) What Newcastle put forward last night was an assault on the eyes, an insult to the game of football. And you can only imagine the reason they turned up was because they would have been docked points otherwise. No ambition, no attack, no threat. Andy Carroll up front. It was horrible to watch. Arsenal, on the other hand, did play some lovely football. And I'm I'm going to take a small victory lap here. I did spend weeks on this podcast calling for the inclusion of Emile Smith-Rowe. Since he's come into the team, Bruno Fernandes is the only player in the league that's creating more chances than him. Another assist for him last night. Aubameyang sparks back into life with two goals. And Bakio Saka who is just a remarkable young player, gets the other. A very comfortable 3-0 win for Arsenal. In truth, they probably could have won 4 or 5-0. They were so much better than Newcastle, it wasn't even funny. It was almost like the two teams were playing different sports. Newcastle managed one shot on target in the entire game. Arsenal jump into the top half of the league. They're now 10th. Now, admittedly, Aston Villa have not one, not two, not even three, but four games in hand over the Gunners. But look, given that a couple of weeks ago, people were calling for Arteta to go, people were saying they're in a relegation battle, a great turnaround, four wins out of the last five, unbeaten in five. They look a much better team than they did a month ago. They just look a much better team. Those two young players, Smith, Rowan and Saka, have transformed the attack. Aubameyang, finally finding a bit of form. Lacazette has been much be- much better in the month or so since Smith-Rowe came into the team as well. Thomas Partey back as well in midfield, and another huge step up for them. So much better than the other options they have there. Gabriel on the bench, but we know he'll come back into the team, and again, that will improve them. They did get one wonderful bit of uh, fitness news, though, and that's that Kieran Tierney was given the all-clear, so he's back and fit. 
there had been worries that he could be out for a little bit of time. But he played last night and again turned in a good performance. They made a change at right back with Cedric coming in for Bellerin, and I thought it made them more balanced. He played with a lot more purpose than what we see from Bellerin. He's a more aggressive physical player as well, and I quite like that. I look at that Arsenal team that played last night, and I think if you can get a better right back, a better right side centre back than Rob Holding, Gabriel in at left centre back, and a proper partner in mid- mid- midfield for Thomas Partey, that Arsenal team could be really feisty. If you could say Edder Militao, who's available on loan from Real Madrid with an option to buy, if they could maybe secure an 18-month loan with an obligation to buy if he plays X amount of games, Militao and Gabriel could be a really good partnership and a long-term partnership for them, something they can build off, something that could become the starting partnership for Brazil down the line as well. Um, They need, obviously, that right back. Max Ahrens would be a wonderful addition to that team. And the thing about bringing in Aaron's and Militao is that Aaron's is basically a winger masquerading as a fullback. He can push on overlap Saka down the left. You can shift Militao across Gabriel across a little bit and tuck Kieran Tierney in and give yourselves a back three to play off. If you don't want to always be committing two fullbacks forward, I think Max Aaron's, this summer would make all the sense for Arsenal. I think 25 million probably gets them. I think that'd be money well spent. If they could do a deal for Militao where they're not paying for him until the summer of 2022, I think that would be perfect. And in midfield, I mean, they've got a bunch of op- options. I-, I think someone like Yves Basima from Brighton would be really good. But Zambo Wangisa from Fulham would be my ideal pick there. I, I think him and Tomas, once they got into rhythm and figure out the timing of things and who goes and who sits at different times. Both of them are very capable ball carriers. Zambo might be the best ball-carrying central midfielder in, in the league at the minute. Good passers, both strong defensively. Physical presences, I think those two as a pairing would work really well because the front four are fine. Now, I was I didn't really agree with the long-term contract for Aubameyang at his age and he hasn't been good this season. But look, if he's scoring goals and he's playing well, then he's going to be worth the money. You don't know what the future holds with Lacazette. There's been talk that he could go. Atletico Madrid have been interested and a couple of others. Now, they have signed Moussa Dembele, so maybe they don't want him anymore. Um, but they have Enketi there as a long-term option. If they can keep Balogun, he's another long-term option. Martinelli's a really talented young attacker to come into this group when he's back fit and playing well. And obviously they still own Reese Nelson, who's super talented. And the other kid they have, John Jules, who's out on loan, very, very talented as well. So they've got their attack sorted. They need to figure out what to do with Willian because I, I was completely against that signing. He's been a disaster. He's on about 200 grand a week and he still has two years left on that deal after this season. So that one's not pretty. That might be another Osel situation. But... The future is bright for Arsenal. They're going in the right direction. I think they were right to stick with Arteta. I think he's a, a more promising manager than the other young managers in the league, like Frank and like uh, Scott Parker. I think they're going in the right direction. I said before the season started, if they can get sixth, they should consider that a good season. Sixth and do well in Europe, that's a good season. It's progress from last season. It's got to be a slow build. If they could add Zambo and Militao and a good right back, that's a top four challenging team. It just is.
Now, depth might be an issue in certain certain areas. Um, like their backup left back is now Saka, so that weakens you at left back and in attack. They lack creativity outside of Smith Rowe, like a pure creator. So maybe you want to add a bit of depth there, but. The bones of something good is there at Arsenal. They need to get rid of a lot of the high earners who've underperformed. Your Mustafis, your David Luiz, uh, Granit Xhaka. Uh, these type of guys need to be sent out of the club. But there's still a lot of talent at Arsenal. They've got one of the best academies in Europe. And if they can finally, finally, finally start getting those academy players into the first team, as they are now with Saka and Smith Rowe, well, that's going to help. That's going to help massively because all of a sudden they're not going to have to sit and look at Serge Gnabry tearing things up for Bayern Munich, who they let go for pittance. They're not going to have to look at Daniel Malin at PSV Eindhoven, who they let go for pittance, or Ishmael Benesser at, at, at uh, AC Milan, who, again, they let go for pittance. They're all players that would improve Arsenal. They let them all go for little or nothing. Now they can take advantage of the fact that they do have that academy. It's stocked full of really talented young players, high-ceiling young players, and Arsenal can move forward. Now, staying in the top half now has to be the objective. So what they really would want to be doing is eyeballing the likes of West Ham, Southampton, clubs that they have more talent than, and looking to get above them this season. Up next for the, for the Gunners, obviously... In the Cup this weekend, they'll play either Shrewsbury or Southampton. Then they get Southampton again in the league. That's the more important game. Then United at home. Then Wolves away. Villa away. Leeds at home. City at home. And Leicester away. It's a really tough run of games. And they've got to make sure they're staying in around that top half. So they can't afford a, you know, a run of games where they lose four out of five or anything like that. The Europa League starts up again as well. That won't help. They drew Benfica, so they'll be tough enough games. But they've got to focus in on the league. They've got to maintain the good form of late. They've got to go into the games against Southampton and United confident, knowing that they're in good form. United are in good form as well, but Arsenal beat them last time. At home, they should have enough to beat them. Southampton away will be tough, obviously, but Wolves are in desperate form. That's a game you can win. Villa are right in the mix with you, where you are right now. That's a game you've got to take something from. Leeds at home. It's a game you can win. City's going to be tough. If City are still in this form at that time, that's going to be really tough. And Leicester will be really tough because Rodgers has them playing very well. But the way Arsenal are going at the minute, you wouldn't put it against them. Newcastle, on the other hand, they're going in entirely the wrong direction. I mean, they some teams make a run at the top four. Newcastle are making a run at the bottom four. They have been atrocious to watch all season not just recently all season they currently sit 15th they've lost four out of five they haven't won in five games they're averaging a goal a game 18 goals in the premier league that is diabolical the only clubs to score less than them are the bottom four all of whom have been largely dreadful for the season there's a real lack of ambition in how steve bruce sets the team up there's no thrust, there's no defined patterns of play, there's no no plan, there's no game plan to how they play. It's a bank of four and a bank of four, or a bank of five and a bank of four. Andy Carroll is a waste of a shirt. In 2021, he is a waste of a shirt. So you're already starting at a disadvantage. 
And it's not like there isn't talent, talent in that Newcastle team. I'm tired of hearing that Steve Bruce is doing the best he can with what he's got, because he's not. He's just not. And forget where they are on the table. The style of play is just awful. They're the worst team to watch by a country mile. Burnley have scored nine goals this season and are better to watch than Newcastle. Nine goals and better than this crowd. They've got two good goalkeepers in Dubravka and Carol Darlow, who's had an excellent season for them. They've got two good right backs in Emil Kraft and Mankio. Now, Mankio's out at the minute, but Kraft is playing well. Why we have seen a whole bunch of DeAndre Edlin this season, I've no idea, but Kraft is good. Fernandez is all right. Shar is all right. Clark is all right. Lachelle's is good. Obviously, he's been out with the COVID thing. But they've got a good right-back situation. They've got one dec- one good centre-back and a couple of decent squad ones. They need to add one next to Lachelle's. And then that's fine. They've got a really good left-back in Jamal Lewis, but they need to find depth behind him. But they're one player away from having a defence you'd be more than happy with. Two if you include the backup left-back. But Dummett could go... And Yedlin could go, and they wouldn't miss either of them. They get rid of them, get in a centre back and a, a squad left back, someone that you can just reliably put in. Now, Harry Pickering, it looks like I think he's going to Blackburn for about seven hundred grand. He would have been ideal as a young player to bring in, huge upside. Could have given uh, Jamal Lewis, you know, some some backup and a little bit of competition, and he would have given them the option of playing a different way as well. In midfield, they've got good options. There's no question that their group of midfielders is strong. A five-man unit of Isaac Hayden, John Joe Shelby, Matty Longstaff, Sean Longstaff, and Jeff Hendrick is a very strong midfield group. It just is a very strong midfield group. It's not top four strong. It's not even top six strong. But it's as good as most teams outside the, the top six have got. In wide areas, they've got Almiron, St. Maximum. Matt Ritchie's a naturally wide player. He's played more left-back and left-wing-back for them, but he is naturally a wide player. Ryan Frazier is a quality player. And Jacob Murphy's a good player. So they've got good options in the wide areas. Up front, I really like Callum Wilson. I like Jolington, but not as a number nine, because he's not a number nine. He He's best off the striker or as a facilitator. He's a good backup option. They need to find another goal scorer, be it an attacking midfielder who plays behind Wilson and can add goals, or someone to play alongside Wilson and add goals. And then Jolington is your third striker. You'd probably then want to add another one for a bit of depth, because yeah, Carroll's an empty shirt. And unfortunately for Dwight Gale, he's just one of those players who's very good in the championship, not quite at the level you'd want in the Premier League. So all things considered, if you could add a centre-back and a striker as starters, a depth left-back and a depth striker, there's four players. It's not outside the realms of possibility. It's not asking for massive amounts. You would get a lot more out of the players that you have. You could be more ambitious. You could play, uh, heaven forbid, an entertaining style of football. Like, if you're going to finish 10th to 15th, 
you don't need to play the way they play. You just don't. Look at Brighton. Brighton don't play like that. I don't think Brighton have a more talented squad. They might have more talented individuals, but they don't have the depth that Newcastle have. They don't have the goalkeeper that Newcastle have. I think Lachelle's, at his best, is a better defender than any of the three centre-backs that Brighton traditionally use. Uh, Ben White is a better footballer, but as a defender, he's borderline awful. Basuma is a better individual midfielder, but I would take the Newcastle group of midfielders. I think they've got better wide players. And Callum Wilson is better than any traditional number nine that Brighton have. Callum Wilson and Mope, funnily enough, would have been a really good partnership if Brighton had gotten Wilson. Now, Brighton aren't having a great season, but look how they play. At least they're fun to watch. They're adventurous. Look at the league table. Look at the teams in and around them. Arsenal are 10th. They're playing exciting football. They do have a better squad, no question. Villa have a better squad, but Villa have spent 200 million on their squad. But again, they're playing inventive football. Do Leeds have a better squad? I don't think they do. They've got some better individuals. Rafinha is a better individual. Rodrigo's probably a better individual. Calvin Phillips is a better individual. But Leeds have better centre-backs, a better left-back, better goalkeepers. I think Kraft and, and Ailing's about even. Kraft's a much better defensive right-back. Ailing's a good attacking right-back. Leeds have a better overall midfield group. Sorry, Newcastle have an overall better midfield group, I think. More depth, more quality. A, a more consistent bar. Leeds have Phillips, and then it's quite a big drop-off to the other options there. You definitely give, I think, Leeds the advantage in the wide areas. But it's close, because so Maximum and Almiron at their best will push Harrison and Rodrigo all the way. And... Newcastle have the depth that Leeds don't really have. And I'd rather have Wilson than Patrick Bamford. You see how Leeds play. And they're four positions ahead of them. Three positions ahead of them. Four points more on the table. Crystal Palace definitely don't have a better squad than Newcastle. Zaha is the best player, and Ezzy's probably the second best player between the two clubs, but it's close between him and St. Maximum. But overall, Newcastle have a better squad. Palace don't play an adventurous style, but they're they're more adventurous than Newcastle. They're more interesting to watch. Wolves, yeah, they've got talent. Newcastle have a better defense. Better center backs for sure. Wolves center backs are awful. Wolves don't have a striker anymore. Newcastle have better strikers. Wolves have a higher caliber of central midfielders, but Newcastle have all that depth. Wolves are boring to watch, but they're boring. Newcastle are insulting to watch because they make you want to turn off. They don't allow you to enjoy the football. There's no reason for Newcastle to play like this. It's fine for Gary Neville to sit there and say, oh, but they played like this under Rafa. No, they didn't. No, they didn't, not even slightly. They were more progressive, more attack-minded. They were just flat out better. And Rafa was doing it when the league was stronger. So I don't want to hear from Steve Bruce's mate 
Steve Bruce is doing a great job. He did a good job last year. He took over late in the summer when Rafa left because the contract wasn't renewed and the club was in turmoil. He did a good job last year. What he's doing this season cannot be described as a good job. Not at all. They backed him in the market. He got Wilson in. He got um, Frazier in. A free transfer admittedly, but decent wages. Jamal Lewis was a good buy. So they backed him in the market. They backed him last summer. Jolington, St. Maximum. Rafa wasn't given that type of money. So he's had the backing. Not as much as you'd want, but he's had some. And what he's doing, what he's putting out, and how they play is horrendous. And he comes out in the paper and says, we're, we're going to do things my way. Is that your way? Is that how you want to play? Because if that's how you want to play, you belong in League One. Not even in the Championship. You belong in League One. That's where you belong. Down with the lads that will kick you all day long. The odd bit of talent sprinkled in. Some young gems coming along. But largely grocks. That's where Steve Bruce belongs. Doesn't get much easier. Or just doesn't get any easier for Newcastle either. They've got Villa away next. Then they've got Leeds at home. Then Everton away. Palace at home. Southampton at home. Chelsea away. United away. And then Wolves at home. There are a couple of winnable games there. There's also a lot of games that you would expect them to lose. If they play like they've been playing of late, they'll lose all of them. Because Leeds will tear them apart. Villa will have too much quality. Everton will have too much quality. The Newcastle Palace game is just destined to be nil-nil. Southampton will run them off the field. Chelsea will have too much quality, plus their bottom half, which means Chelsea are contractually obliged to beat them. United will wallop them, as they did at St. James's in 15 minutes, that they just, or 20 minutes, they decided to turn it on. And then that Wolves game. And Wolves may well find themselves in bother then, and, and things may have shifted around for them, but that is a difficult next six weeks for them. Very difficult run of games across the next six weeks. And barring a massive change in attitude, a massive change in approach, Newcastle are in trouble. Because as they sit today, they have 19 points from 18 games played. They're two points ahead of Brighton, though they do have a game in hand. But that is the game against Villa, which won't be easy. The one plus for them is the Villa haven't played since New Year's Day. Now, they play City tomorrow night. And then there's that game. So they might catch Villa a little bit cold, a little bit out of sorts. But that is a tough game for them. 19 points, three clear of Burnley. But Burnley have a game in hand on them. They're only seven points clear of Fulham. And if Fulham can keep picking up points along the way, while Newcastle are throwing games away, not really taking part in games for long stretches, seven points could disappear quite quickly. All it takes is a couple of Fulham wins, and that gap will close. And Fulham have games coming up against Brighton and West Brom that they could well win. They're both away, so they'll be difficult, but they could win both of them. 
If they win both of them and Newcastle lose the next few, one point. Who would you back over the course of the season? It's the talent level I would give to Fulham. Newcastle better depth, but the, the, their best 11s, I'd say Fulham have a better best 11. Neither have good managers. But if it comes down to pure talent, you give it to Fulham. And Fulham also play with some ambition. Fulham try to win games. Newcastle set out not to lose. Can't play like that. You can't play like that. Tonight, we have two games. West Ham will play host to West Brom. David Moyes against Big Sam. Um, Going into the game, obviously West Ham are top half team this year, ninth position, back-to-back wins. Only one defeat in the last four games. They're in good form. Rice and Suchek playing very, very well. Uh, Ben Rama has settled in in the three behind the striker. Antonio's fit again. There's some good creativity down the left with Ben, ben Rama floating and Fornals coming in field. Craig Dawson has come into the team in, in defence and the partnership with him and Ogbonna seems to be working quite well. It's never going to be your ideal partnership, but for what they want at the minute, it is working. West Brom got a big win against Wolves, but before that it had been diabolical. Couple of hammerings. Obviously, the, the draw at Anfield was a, was a big result for them, but you'd have to fancy the Hammers at home to take the three points in this one. Uh, West Ham are without Balbuena. That's not a loss. Um, he's isolating. And Masawaka, the left back, has been out for a while. He's going to remain out for a while. But Cresswell's playing well at left back, so uh, Masawaka might not start anyway. For West Brom, no Carlin Grant. He's got a broken foot. Connor Townsend is injured. Um, Sam Johnston and Matty Phillips are out with COVID. And Grady Diangana is injured. So, you know, two of your three best attackers in, in Grant and Diangana have gone out. Your goalkeeper's out. And Matty Phillips is a really good squad player. He's out as well. So, it's tough to see how West Brom get a result here. Now, Big Sam is the master of, of the nil-nil or the one all, And... We know that West Ham aren't going to be overly committed going forward. They'll play a conservative style of football. But it's tough to see that defense stopping Mikel Antonio. It really is. It's tough to see how they cope with the physicality or the pace, the creativity in behind, plus the pace and movement of Jared Bowen and off the right, the threaded set pieces. Suchek may be the biggest weapon that anybody has at set pieces now that Van Dyke is injured. West, ha- uh, West Brom, obviously, comfortably the worst defensive team in the league. 41 goals conceded through 18 games. Uh, seven more than anybody else. Whereas West Ham have been good defensively, only conceding 21. West Ham have scored 25. That's solid and right in the mix with the rest of the teams around them in the league. Whereas West Brom have only scored 14 goals. And as I say, two of the best attackers now out. Um, or, well, Diangana might be might be back, but he's not going to be 100% fit. And Grant is, is definitely out for the next couple of months. It's hard to see anything other than a West Ham win. And I'm going to go with a 2-0 West Ham win. I think they've got better players, a better manager, better style of play, more ambitious at home, in form. I think uh, West Ham's a fairly good bet there. And then the big game tonight is Leicester at home to Chelsea. 
This one should be a cracker. Really should be a cracker of a game. Leicester come into it in decent form. Uh, three wins out of their last five, unbeaten in the last five, sitting third in the league, playing with confidence, pretty much everybody back. Now, they have lost Dennis Pryat, and uh, he's going to be out for a couple of months, according to Brendan Rodgers. That is a blow, but it's mainly a blow for depth. Because if you're picking their best team, he's not in it. Madison, Telemans, and Didi. That's the midfield three you want. Barnes on the left, and then either Albrighton or under whoever, Yosi Perez maybe, on the right-hand side. He's a, he's a blow for depth, but they'll have their best 11 available to them. Sionchu is fit again. He might get a start. Came on in the last game. Ricardo Pereira is fit again. He might get a start here, having not played at the weekend. If he does get a start, it'll be interesting to see which of the fullbacks drop out, because obviously Castanier was bought for big money in the summer. He's played right back in the last couple of games. But James Justin has been arguably the best fullback in the league this season. He's played both sides, left back of late. So Will Castanier obviously has played a lot of left back in his time at Atalanta. So it will be interesting to see. Pereira will come in at right back at some point. If it's for this game, who's who's at left back? That is a, a question. I think it has to be Justin. I, I find it hard to see how you could justify leaving him out of the team. He's been so good for them. Uh, but they did pay, pay, uh, they did spend big money on Castanier. So that's a tough one for... For Leicester, it's Prayet and, and Mendy uh, who are either out or doubtful. Mendy could make it, but he has a late fitness test. N'Golo Kante has a hamstring strain. He'll have a late fitness test. Uh, he is expected to play, but that could change up to game time, which is quarter past eight tonight. Chelsea obviously sits seventh. They had a good win at the weekend over Fulham. Didn't play pretty well, but anytime you win a local derby, it is a good win. Uh, only two wins in the last five, two defeats in the last five. It hasn't been going well for Frank. Pressure is definitely mounting on him, especially you know with what happened at PSG with, with Thomas Tuchel getting the, the heave-ho. And his name now been, now been out there along with Max Allegri. That's two automatic upgrades that Chelsea could call on if they decide to move on from Frank. This one could be, this one could be really important for Frank. A win for Leicester here would leave them nine points clear of Chelsea. And if Liverpool were to beat Burnley on Thursday, they'd be eight points outside the top four. That's a big, big gap to try and make up. They're leveling points with Southampton and West Ham. And as I said, I expect West Ham to win tonight. So they could go ahead. Of, uh, of Chelsea, which obviously is not what Chelsea will want at this point. Um, even look down, you know, Arsenal all of a sudden only two points behind them. Villa three points back, but with three games in hand. It's not outside the realms of possibility that if Chelsea have a you know another couple of bad games, they could dip and find themselves, you know, struggling to stay in the top half, which when you spend that type of money, and had all your people in the media tell everybody else, this is the best transfer window anyone's ever had. You kind of can't really afford to be floating around 8th, ninth, 10th. You've, you've really got to be pushing for top four. Now, a win here obviously would change everything. be massive for them. Would push them above Everton. Now, admittedly, Everton would have two games in hand. 
but it would keep them right in touch with the the top four. They'd only be three points behind Leicester themselves. So all things considered, a win here for Chelsea does change the dynamic. But you know, you often hear about relegation six pointers. For I think for Lampard, this game is a six pointer. There's a six point gap now. It either goes to three or it goes to nine. Now it could stay at six, obviously, if they draw. You know, a draw will probably is probably what will happen. But three points is one thing. Nine points is massive. If you're nine points behind Leicester, who most people don't expect to finish in the top four at the end of the season, including myself, I will admit, I think they'll finish fifth or sixth. Um, that that's not a good look for Frank. That really isn't a good look for Frank. Um, those, those two games should be decent for different reasons. Be, it'll be interesting just if West Ham can continue this momentum and carry on their form. And then obviously that game, Leicester versus Chelsea, should be a belter. Right, moving on. Um, some big news happened over the weekend. Obviously, Mesut Ozil, his contract at Arsenal has finally been torn up. They've come to an agreement on a, a financial settlement, I assume. And he has left the club six months early. He has signed for Fenerbahce in the Turkish league. David Ornstein broke the story as he as he tends to do, being the the best journalist in the country when it comes to to reporting any sort of transfer or contract news. Um, also leaves Arsenal under a cloud. Obviously, he arrived with lots of hype. He'd been fantastic for Real Madrid. He'd obviously played an important part in Arsenal or in in Real, um, winning winning a league title there. He'd become one of the best creators in the world during his time there, and a lot was expected from him. Maybe too much, along with Alexis Sanchez, it might have been a little bit too much to expect them to carry Arsenal back to the promised land, but. You can't really say he didn't deliver. 184 Premier League games, 33 goals, 58 assists. In the FA Cup, 16 games, 2 goals, 6 assists. Helped them win 3 FA Cups. Um, 4 FA Cups. Did he not play in last year's FA Cup? Surely he played one game in last. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't play at all in last year's FA Cup. But, um... He was at the club for four FA Cup wins. He played a big role in three of them. He obviously went on to help Germany win the World Cup in 2014, uh, which, you know, every club celebrates when one of their players win the, wins the World Cup. You you feel like you're somehow connected to it. The last couple of years haven't gone well. There's always been that thing about him that, you know, maybe he doesn't always turn up in big games and he'd had some injuries and there was some, you know, hand-wringing about whether he was actually injured or whether he just you know, wasn't really in the mood to play. They gave him a massive new contract a couple of years ago. He asked for it, but they gave it to him. The club didn't have to give it to him. They could have sold him. They could have said no and just let him leave on a free. But they made a decision. You would assume they considered all the, the angles and the, the factors involved. And they made a decision to give him a contract of 350 grand a week. They made that decision. Nobody else. Yes, he asked for it, but they made the decision to give it to him. 
there's no fatality here towards the club. It wasn't a a thing where they had to do it. And his performances have dipped over the last two years, without question. Um, he's never been a big goal scorer, but the creative numbers did drop. Last season, obviously, he wasn't playing particularly well. He got dropped. He came back in. He did play well. Then Arteta arrived, and then he got dropped again. And he hasn't really been seen since. So he has been sitting at home, twiddling his thumbs, not playing much football, and earning 350 grand a week for the last 18 months, where he's only played 18 Premier League games, 23 in all competitions. Now, one high-profile Arsenal fan, Piers Morgan, has you know taken to Twitter a number of times to run his mouth, as, as he does, because that's what Piers Morgan does when he's not hacking into people's phones, he's running his mouth on social media. And he's had a couple of pops at Osel, and Osel has popped back, and, you know, you'd, you'd kind of back Osel in any situation against Piers Morgan, regardless of right or wrong. In the summer, or what was the summer, there was obviously the issue over the the, the pay cuts that Arsenal players were asked to take. And Osel asked for guarantees regarding the pay cut. One of the guarantees was that no staff at the club would be laid off. Another guarantee was that a certain amount of the money would go to charity. Arsenal wouldn't give him these guarantees. He refused the pay cut. They laid off 50-something staff. Not a good look. And, you know, he was right that they weren't to be trusted. He donated a massive sum of his salary, as he has always done. He, he does incredible work with charities, um, and including his own foundation. He donated a lot of his work, uh, money to um, to COVID help, uh, COVID charities, and got hammered for it, got hammered for not taking the pay cut, as if his money was the reason those 50 people got laid off, and, and not the 200 grand a week they were giving to Willian, or the money for Partey, or, or the money for Gabriel. No, 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 it was definitely the money they would have saved on the Osel contract. Um, as soon as the news broke that Arsenal and Ozil had reached an agreement for him to leave, uh, shameless self-promoting spoofer Guillaume Balaga, close friend of Mikel Arteta, it should be noted, piped up to suggest that Ozil was entirely to blame and that when the story comes out, Ozil will look very bad. So you can expect the book penned by Guillaume Balaga, and when I say penned, I mean written in crayons uh, with pictures drawn in the next probably 18 months. Um, I've spoken to a couple of Arsenal fans, Arsenal reporters, people that have some sort of connections. Everything I've heard is secondhand. I, I have no source on this or anything like that. I never pretend to. But I've spoken to some people who do have connections, or at least let on they have connections, and they have told me that when that story comes out, there's a lot of people who will look bad, and Mesut Ozil is not one of them. That Edu is going to look exceptionally bad. Exceptionally bad. Raúl Sanjali, who's gone, he will look bad. Arteta will look bad, and club ownership will look bad. That while Ozil has been painted as the bad guy, he's done very little wrong. He has been available to play. He's turned up for training. He's been supportive of his teammates. He's just been treated like 
something somebody found in the bottom of their shoe. Off he goes to Fenerbahce. I I love Mesut Ozil as a footballer, and I think it's hilarious that Arsenal spent most of the season playing 4-3-3 or 3-4-3, crying out for creativity. Finally make a move to a 4-2-3-1 and play a number 10, unlock everything and start to win games when they had a great number 10 sitting, not registered to play in the Premier League in Mesut Ozil. It took Emile Smith-Rowe, and as much as I like Emile Smith-Rowe, Mesut Ozil remains a vastly superior, vastly more creative player at this point in their respective careers. But I wish him all the best to Fenerbahce. I hope he absolutely lights the league up. And I hope he continues to speak out against um, the wrongs that he sees in the world, including, you know, the treatment of of um, of Muslims in, in China, which is obviously one of the things that, that got him in a bit of trouble with the Arsenal hierarchy because of the money that floods into the Premier League and, and to each individual club from China. Um, I hope Osler continues to, to be who he is and speak out and, you know, and play the way he can. Um, it's great to see him go to Fenerbahce and go back to the country of his parents. Uh, his first time, obviously, playing in Turkey, started his career with Schalke, went to Werder Bremen, then on to Real Madrid, and then, obviously, the last seven and a half years at Arsenal. I think he's a great player. Uh, never fully showed the full range of his abilities at Arsenal. But for what they paid for him, I think they got return on their investment. Uh, multiple top four finishes, three FA Cups that he played a big part in, a fourth that he doesn't seem to be getting any credit for. But I have to believe he was at least on the bench for one of the games. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he wasn't. Um, yeah, I wish him all the best. I, I've loved watching Mesut Ozil play since he was at Werder Bremen. Um, the other big story then is that Wayne Rooney has called time on his playing career and become the full-time manager of Derby County. Uh, he's obviously been the interim manager at Derby for a little while. It's gone okay. It hasn't been brilliant, but it's gone okay. Uh, 11 games in charge, three wins, four draws. 13 points, it's an improvement on, on what they had been doing, but you know, there's, it's a 27% win percentage. They're still not playing particularly well. The style of football is definitely better than it was under Philippe Koku, who had kind of reverted into his, into his shell and um, you know, it was rather uninspiring. Now, a big defeat at the weekend for Rooney after he's appointed manager. They lose 1-0 at home to Rotherham. Um, but, you know, they've got that COVID outbreak, so he didn't have a full squad available to him. Um, but it, it, it sinks them into the bottom three. They're now uh, level on points still with Rotherham and Sheffield Wednesday, but they have two games more played than Rotherham. Sorry, Rotherham have two games in hand is how I should say it. Um, it does look like that, that four, and you can include Wickham, who are nailed to the bottom on 15 points, are going to battle it out with only one survival. Because QPR are five points clear of Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, QPR said 20th. Forest 19th on 25 points. So there is a bit of a gap there. It would be difficult to see with the current form how anything gets turned around. But, you know, when Rooney took over, and he took over initially on the 14th with a couple of others, and then on the 26th he became the lone interim manager. On the 28th, they got a draw against Wickham. 
Then they drew against Coventry. Then they beat Millwall. They drew against Brentford. They drew against Stoke. They beat Swansea. The game against Rotherham was postponed, the, the, what was to be the first game of the season between them. They lost to Preston. That was his first loss as, as solo manager. And then they bounced back by walloping uh, Birmingham. So they did go through a good run of games there where they only lost one from eight. That's a good run of games when you're in the bottom area of the championship. Uh, the three wins are big. you know. And when you're picking up points along the way, that will help, especially in a tight group where you've got three teams on the same amount of points and everybody's battling against each other. That loss against Rotherham, though, feels like a big one, feels important. Up next, they've got Bournemouth, who are going pretty well. QPR, in, in what is now a hugely important game right down there at the bottom, if QPR were to win, would open that gap up even further. Um, then they've got Bristol, and then Rotherham in that rearranged game on February the 2nd, and that, that is one now they're going to have to win. They have to win that game to give themselves a chance. You would hope that it goes well for Rooney. Um, you would hope that he goes on to, to do well as a manager. We've obviously seen Derby been a stepping stone for Frank Lampard. I don't think Rooney's doing a year at Derby and then walking into a different job or 18 months and walking into a different job. But, you know, his name will get him in the door at places. That's absolutely the truth of it. Um, the playing career, obviously, ha- has been remarkable. I mean, made his debut for Everton at 16 exploded onto the Premier League scene with that goal against Arsenal and, and Clive, Tilsley, Clive Tilsley with the remember the name line. And obviously we, we will never forget Wayne Rooney because he is one of the best players the Premier League has ever seen. He went to United and was phenomenal for them. I, I believe he's their all-time record scorer. He's definitely England's all-time record scorer. Went back to Everton for a season. It, it went okay, but you know he, he looked like his legs were gone as he had in his last couple of seasons at United. And then he went to the MLS for two seasons before landing at Derby, where it was really winding down from. Now, you know, when you look at his United legacy, obviously 253 goals in 559 games, it's a very good return. It's not a great return for a guy that did predominantly play as a striker. His last great season was 2011-2012 was also the last season he was regularly fit or seemed regularly fit. Um, he was never a massive goal scorer. Uh, 07, 06, 07 was his third season there. He scored 23 goals. That was the first time in his career he'd gone over 20. He did, he did 20 in 08, 09. 34 the following year, he was spectacular in that 08, uh, 09, 10 season. And then 11, 12. Uh, 34 goals again. They're the only times in his career he scored over 20 goals in a season. That's for a player of his talent and his reputation. That is disappointing. And if you look at his league goals, his first season to Everton six, that's fine. Nine the second season again, that's fine. He's a child. He goes to United for 27 million, 11, 16, 14, 12, 12, 26, 11, 27. 12, 17, 12, 8, and 5. So he was never a massively consistent goal scorer. He had two outstanding seasons, but they're the only seasons in his Premier League career that he scored over over 20. He only had two others scoring over 15. Now, he obviously offered a lot more. He was a creative player. His work ethic was incredible. He was a great presser. 
He was part of some exceptional teams at United. Uh, he won five league titles, an FA Cup, three league cups, and a Champions League, uh, and a Europa League as he was heading out the door. Um, it's, a, it's a great haul of trophies. He was part of that incredible attack that United had uh, when they had Berbatov, Tevez, and Ronaldo as, long, as well as him. Now, personally, I always preferred it when it was Tevez on the right, Berbatov in the middle, and Ronaldo on the left, to when it was Rooney through the middle. I, I just, I, I always preferred the aesthetic and the results when it was Berbatov. Um, I don't doubt that Rooney had a, a better career and was maybe a better player, but Berbatov was a lot more fun to watch, and, and he made others better. There's no argument that Wayne Rooney's a great player. There's absolutely none. He was a great player. I don't believe he was ever a world-class player. He definitely had a couple of world-class seasons. I just don't believe he was ever a world-class player. I don't believe there was ever a time where Wayne Rooney was one of the three or four best players in his position in the world. Now, that's not a knock on him. What I will say is I don't believe he became the player he had the potential to become. There's multiple parts to that. Number one, he maybe didn't always live the best lifestyle. Maybe he didn't always take the best care of his diet. There were injuries along the way, and he had that kind of heavy set frame where he didn't look like he would age particularly well. And in truth, by the time he was 26, 27, he was very much on the wane. He was very much kind of drifting along. That last season, um, the 11-12 season, that's the year he turned 27. That's the last great Wayne Rooney season. He had good seasons after that, but they were always a little step below where he could have been. And into his 30s then, he was a shadow of, him, of his former self. He didn't age well. His game didn't age well. Obviously, he moved into midfield a little bit as well, and, and that didn't help because it was more mileage on the legs, injuries, etc., etc. Rooney's peak was really 24, 23, 24 to 27, rather than the more traditional 27 to 30. Partly, obviously, because he started so young, coming into the league at 16, played 33 games that first season as, as a kid. I mean, that's pretty much unheard of. Uh, it took a hammering by centre-backs who were happy to give him a kicking because he would give them a kicking back. He could take the hammering, but it obviously did wear him down in time. A great player, no doubt. I just don't think he maximised his talent. I don't think he became the player he could have become. There's a variety of reasons to that. I also think he got caught up in some politics at United where he would continually leaked that he wanted to leave in order to get a new contract. And there'd be a lot of distraction, a lot of noise around that, and I never felt he played well when he was a massive focus of attention off the field. I think that hampered him as well. You can pick the seasons. 10-11, there was contract noise that year. 11 goals off the back of 26 goals the previous season. That's a bad return. The next season with no contract noise, 27 goals in the league. No problem. The master of his own downfall in certain ways. But like I say, no doubt a great player. 
did incredible things for United, won everything, retires a legend at multiple clubs. I mean, whether he's a legend at Everton or not is down to Everton fans. He only played three seasons for them. He's more a cult hero than a legend, I think, based on what he did on the field. Um, I mean, 25 goals isn't really going to get you legendary status uh, from over 100 games, but, you know, or uh, 28 goals in all competitions, but it is from, you know, 117 games. Uh, It's not a great return, but he was very young and then he was past his best. At United, no question. All-time legend. Probably doesn't make their best all-time 11, despite being their all-time leading scorer. And you think it's like the likes of Dennis Law, Cantona, Ruud van Nistelrooy. I don't know that I'd put him up front ahead of those three. Certainly doesn't make it in midfield where they've had, you know, I mean, Roy Keane, Paul Scholes, uh, these caliber of players. But, you know, a great, great player who had a great career. I wish him the best in management. I hope he does well. I have my doubts. Uh, because I think it's a little bit too soon. I think he would have benefited from going and maybe working under David Moyes at West Ham for a couple of years or, you know, somebody else entirely, somebody he didn't know, didn't have a relationship but could have gone to, well, he has a relationship with him, but maybe he could have gone to Rangers and work, worked under Gerrard for a year, learned the ropes a bit more, seen from Gerrard's point of view what it's like to be, you know, such a high-profile person moving into management. It might just be too soon for Rooney, but hopefully not. Hopefully for Derby and for him, it works out. I, I really like Derby. My stepfather's brother's a Derby fan, so I've always had a bit of a soft spot for them. Um, one thing I did hear, though, and I, I thought it was interesting, and, and I wanted to look into it, was a couple of journalists, as Rooney announced his retirement, made the point, you know, like... One of Ferguson's greatest ever signings. And Ferguson made an awful lot of great signings. And it got me thinking, did he though? Like an awful lot of great signings. He did definitely make some great signings. You could even say a lot of great signings. But an awful lot of great signings? I don't know. So I thought I'd have a look. And I haven't really checked this so far. So I'm going to do this on the fly. Um... And go through each season and see who United brought in. So you look at 89-90 is the first season I have access to the information without trawling the internet. And I can't be bothered doing that. So bear with me. Um, He brings in Mike Phelan, Neil Webb, someone called Brian Carey, Gary Pallister, Paul Ince, Danny Wallace, Andy Rammel, Les Seeley, Dennis Irwin, and Neil Withworth. Now, I would say Pallister, absolute, a hit. Ince, absolutely a hit. And Irwin, absolutely a hit. Now, Les Seeley had been at the club on loan and then was signed permanently and only played a handful of games after that. But he'd won them an FA Cup, so I think he's a meh. So I've got five categories, I should point out. So I've got star. So someone that came in and just transcended things and was incredible for them. Hit, someone that was very good for a prolonged period of time. Meh, neither good nor bad. A miss, someone that didn't work out. And a flop, 
which is where there was high expectations and they were bad or they were just outright dreadful. So in this list, I think feeling is a meh. I don't know who Brian Carey is, so he's good in his meh because I've never heard of him, so he obviously didn't do a whole bunch at United. I think Danny Wallace was a miss. I don't think he ever performed to the level he had at Southampton. Uh, Andy Rammel, again, don't know anything about him, so meh. And the same for Neil Whitworth and Les Seeley. Put them down as meh. So in that first window, we've got three hits, five meh, and one miss. Sorry, two miss, because Neil Webb, I think, has to be considered a miss. Now, it is largely down to injuries, but he was never close to the player for them than he had been at Forest. He never fully established himself in the United team the way he was expected to. Um, I think he, he overall has to go down as, as a disappointing uh, signing for them. So we move on uh, into 1991. Only signing made Andre Kinchelskis. Definitely a hit. Tremendous player. Huge part of their first title winning teams. Uh, great right winger. Obviously would go on to play for... Fiorentina and Everton. Um, bad shoulder injury later in his career kind of hampered him, but tremendous player. Then it was Paul Parker and Peter Schmeichel. Now, Paul Parker was England's right back at the time. Arrived with big expectations. Did well. Not great, but I think I think he did well. So I think he's a hit. Schmeichel is an absolute star. One of the great signings, and you know what? As I think of it, Dennis Irwin has to go into the star category. Because Dennis Irwin gave them a decade of brilliance. Uh, So Dennis Irwin has to be in the star category. As does Peter Schmeichel. Now, as I said, I have no idea how this is going to end up because I haven't really looked at it in depth. I was just curious to see how many great signings did he make over his time. Into... Uh, 92-93 Jan Gorowski no idea Pat McGibbon no idea Dion Dublin was a miss now that was in part because he broke his leg but he was a miss Cantona obviously a star Um, and then they brought back Les Seeley and uh, God knows why but uh, Les Seeley, once again, by two. Um, Neil Webb left that summer for half what they paid from, which I'll tell you he was indeed a miss. 93-94 is the next season up there. And they don't have information on who they signed, which is great. Let me have a look at the squad and see if I can figure out who they brought in that summer. Um, no, no idea. Maybe they didn't sign anybody. Oh, Lee Sharp was signed in that summer. I would say meh, but, you know. 94-95. This was the last season of Ince and and Hughes, wasn't it? 94-95. They didn't buy anybody that summer um, because Ferguson felt like with the young players coming through, I tell a lie. I tell a lie. They did make one one. Roy Keane, arguably the best signing he ever made. Uh, the greatest leader, the greatest captain the Premier League has seen. I would say the best midfielder that the Premier League has seen. Has seen. Uh, tremendous player. Um, 
Right, on to 95-96. Nikki Culkin, meh. Tony Cotton, miss. And Raymond van der Howe. Has to be a flop. Has to be a flop based on him throwing the ball through his own legs. Now, he was a free, so that is context for that, but has to be a flop. Uh, 96-97, then. Ronnie Janssen, I would say hit, played a key part in winning the treble Carol Paborski definitely a flop arrived with a big reputation after the uh, the Euros Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, massive hit Jordi Cruyff a miss and Teddy Sheringham absolutely a hit so as things stand his transfer record is, I would say, bordering on exceptional. Um, 97-98, Eric Nevland, miss. Henning Berg's a tough one. He'd been really good at Blackburn. I don't think he was ever close to the level for United. He was there a few years. I think he's a miss. And Jonathan Greening... Never really made an impact and was sold off. I'll put him down as a meh because they made a profit on him when they sold him. Uh, Berg, they signed for five million, which was a lot of money at that time in, in 97, 98. Was a substantial sum of money, especially for a, for a centre-back. Um, Yapstam goes into the star category in 98, 99. Jesper Blomqvist, I think, has to be considered a miss. Dwight York is a hit. And Bojan Bordic, the less said, the better. That is not a particularly good signing. But Yapstam uh, and Dwight York that summer, two incredible players. Yapstam's one of the best centre-backs the Premier League has ever seen. And when people talk about Rio Ferdinand being the best United defender of the Premier League era, I wonder what they're talking about because I saw Gary Pallister I saw Yapstam, I saw Nemanja Vidic, and all three of them were better than Rio Ferdinand. Um, right. 99-2000, uh, this was a disaster of a window. Mark Bosnich, flop. Quinton Fortune, decent squad player for a bunch of years. I'll give him a meh. Massimo Taibi, disaster, has to be in flop. Uh, Mikel Sylvester, then the last signing of that year. Uh, good squad player for a number of years, reliable starter. They sold him at a profit, I think, to Arsenal. So I, I think you put him down as a hit. I think that's fair. Um, at the end of that season, moving into the next summer, they signed Fabian Bartes. Uh, that was their only real incoming that summer. Um Hart, like I think he has to be a miss because he didn't perform to the level he was expected to perform. He was obviously World Cup winning goalkeeper, would win the Euros the summer he was signed. You never felt like he was the permanent solution uh, for United. And as I look at the other transfers in the summer of 2000, I mean, Taibi sold at a loss, Jordi Cruyff sold at a loss, Henning Berg sold at a loss. Um, and Mark Bosnich released, it does confirm that I'm right to have them all as misses. 
into 0102, and we'll try and rattle through these a bit quicker because I have been uh, pondering. Uh, Roy Carroll, I think, is a is a meh. He was signed as a backup goalkeeper. He stayed as a backup goalkeeper. Ruud van Nistelrooy, absolute star. Absolute star. Game changer. Scored goals for fun. Uh, but Sebastian Veron also signed and can only be described as a flop. Uh, Lauren Blanc, I think, also has to go in the flop category. Diego Forlan is a miss. Now, he would go on to have a great career, but at United, it obviously just didn't uh, didn't work out well for him. And Luke Steele, I mean, I think I think that's a miss as well. I, you know, they had they had really high hopes for him, uh, and he just never became what they wanted him to be. So we're into o two o three, and um, this is obviously the season that Arsenal became rather spectacular. Beckham leaves. Uh, Rio Ferdinand arrives with. Um, Oh, Beckham left at the end of the season. Never mind. Rio Ferdinand arrives for twenty nine million. It's a hit. There's no question. It's a hit. I don't think he's a star. I don't think you can put him in the same group as Irwin, Schmeichel, Cantona, Keane, Stammer, or Ruud van Nistelrooy, because I don't think he's that level of player. But I think he's in the list with the hits with Palister, Ince, Kinchelskis, etc. Uh, Ricardo, another backup goalkeeper, arrives. Um, you just put him down as a meh because you know that's where Roy Carroll went, so that's where he goes. Uh, onwards, oh three, oh four. Right, this is where things got somewhat hairy, somewhat incredible, and then really weird again. So, uh, David Bellion, uh, flop. Uh, we'll put him as a miss, but you know he was pretty disastrous. Eric Jemba Jemba. I mean, there's just no explaining why they signed him. Miss uh, Tim Howard, I think you put him in as a miss. All the hype uh, never really worked there. He went on to do very well, obviously for Everton, but but not there. Cleberson is a flop. Um, six and a half million, I think they spent on him, and just not very good. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously the star of stars. What a signing! What incredible things he did at that club. Uh, just a, a ridiculously talented player. Dong Fangzhou. Uh, signed purely to try and break into the Chinese market. Uh, a disastrous st- signing. That was in the January. And then Louis Saha, who, if he could have stayed fit, I think would have done brilliantly at United. As things went, it didn't go great. He was injured a lot. He had, he had won maybe two good seasons that you could have. One good season, really. One good season where he averaged a goal at every two games across all competitions. But I think it's a miss. They sold him at a loss to Everton as well. Uh, for me, I think he has to go down. Like it was a pay-as-you-play deal and, and a very small fee, having paid a big fee. I think Zaha, uh, Saha, rather, Louis Saha, has to be a miss, unfortunately, because he was a good player and he'd been really good for um, for Fulham. In that next summer, then, they signed Alan Smith from Leeds. Um, I think it's a miss. Never really made sense as a signing for United. But they also signed Gabriela Heinze, and that is a hit. Now, I realize there are different levels of hit. Heinze is not the same level of hit as Rio, but I wasn't doing any more than five categories because, you know, it would just look ridiculous. They signed Jared Piquet. 
he didn't work for United and he went back to Barca. I think it's a meh because I don't think it's a flop because he didn't really get a chance. Not a miss because he didn't really get a chance. I think they made money on him. And I would say the same is true of Giuseppe Rossi. And then there's Rooney. Rooney signed that summer, uh, $27 obviously a star, no question about it. He was, uh, we've been over it. He was was great for them. Edwin van der Sar, definite hit. Park Ji-sung, hit. Ben Foster, I think he has to go down as a miss. Even though he went on to have such a good career, it didn't work. You know, you know what, we'll go meh. Uh, and then the next two, Nemanja Vidic is a star. Transformed that defense, made them incredibly hard to beat. And Patrice Evra, I, it's a hit for sure. I don't think he's a star level. I don't think he's as good as the ones we've got in star level. But certainly uh, a tremendous uh, player for United for a long, long time. Um, Michael Carrick is a hit, no question. The the easily the most underrated player of his era, English player of his era, um, tremendous player. Then it's then it, it does look a bit bad after that. So David Patricio. Meh, he, he was meant to be the next big thing. He didn't become that. Rodrigo Pozaban and Manucho, th- these were young players that were signed and never amounted to anything at United. Um, Thomas Kuzak, good young goalkeeper actually, but never got a chance at United. So we'll put him down as a meh. Nani, I think it's a hit, but it's it's very close to being a meh. He had some good seasons. He had a lot of bad seasons. You know, I'll put him as a hit because overall, I think he, he probably was a hit for them. Anderson is a flop, no question. Huge, huge reputation when he arrived from Porto, and it just turned out to be a disaster. And unfortunately, largely because of injuries, Owen Hargreaves has to go into the flop category as well because he'd been really promising at, um, at Bayern. He was really good for Bayern when he played there for seven years. But, I mean, at United, he just he couldn't stay fit. That one season, the first season, he played 34 games. In the three seasons after that, he played five. In all competitions, I'm sorry, injuries, are, injuries happen, but that's a flop. Um, it's not his fault. It's not Ferguson's fault, but it is a flop. 08-09... They signed Raphael, who I would regard as a hit, the young right back. His brother Fabio, who I think was a miss. Berbatov is an absolute hit. Zoran Tosic is a miss. And Richie Delat is a meh because he barely got an opportunity at the club. Um that was the year they sold Sylvester. So I, you know, we signed, we, we went through his signing a number of years back. He lasted until then and went to Arsenal for an undisclosed fee, which I think was profit on what they paid from. Um, Antonio Valencia is a hit. No question. I think Michael Owen is a meh played, a, played an important enough role in winning a title, but overall 
meh. Gabrielle O'Burton is a miss. Mame Biram Diouf was talented and never became the player he should have been. He is a miss, unfortunately. Uh, that's the summer Cristiano Ronaldo leaves for 80 million. Quite the return on investment for Manchester United. Um, Marnik Vermel Meh. Javier Hernandez, I think he's a hit. It's borderline because he wasn't there all that long and he had a couple of iffy seasons, but I think it's a hit. Uh, Bebe is a flop because they paid seven million for him on the advice of some fella who might have been his uncle. And Anders Lindegaard, another backup goalkeeper. The other signing that summer is Chris Smalling. And I, I don't know that he can be classed as a miss, but I don't know that he can be classed as a hit. But he played too long there to be a mess. I'm going to put him as hit. I'm going to be fair to him. He had a couple of decent seasons. And they made a profit when they eventually sold him 10 years later to Roma. 11-12, this is, of course, the season of Aguero. Uh, one of Ferguson's last, second last season under Ferguson. Phil Jones, unfortunately, my friend, it is a miss. I, I'm a big Phil Jones believer, but it just has never worked for him properly. Uh, Ashley Young, I think, has to be a hit. De Gea is a star. And Freddie Vasselli, who I have no idea who he is, so he's got into the meh category. And then we move on to the last summer of Alex Ferguson's tenure and the last summer of his career. Shinji Kagawa was a miss for United. There's no doubt about that. Nick Powell was a miss for United. Very talented, never worked out. Will Zaha was a miss for United. Angelo Henrique was a miss for United. And Alexander Butner was a miss for United. However, also in that summer, they signed Robin Van Persie, who, while not there as long as certain others, almost single-handedly won them a league title. So for that reason, I put him in the star category because he single-handedly won them a league title. Um, funnily, they also let Paul Pogba go on a free transfer that summer. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Dimitar Berbatov also left that summer. Uh, Robbie Brady, currently playing for uh, Burnley, also left that summer. Josh King left that summer. Ollie Norwood of Sheffield United left that summer. When you consider that other than, if you take Berbatov, uh, take Van Persie out, that's a disastrous summer. An absolutely disastrous summer. For Manchester United. So, all that done, right? We've been through all the signings. And what I've got... I've got 11 stars. Erwin, Schmeichel, Cantona, Keane, Stam, Van Nistelrooy, Ronaldo, Rooney, Vidic, De Gea and Van Persie. I think all those 11... World-class... 100%, no argument hits. Do you know what? I have to, I might as well move. I'll, I'll move Rio in because they'll only be crying. We'll put Rio in. I think he's one of the most overrated players of the Premier League era, but 
He was there a long time. He won a lot. We'll put Rio in. We'll make it 12. 12 stars. In the, the hit list, we've got 5, 10, 15, 20. We've got 21. So 33 signings from his, his tenure that you would say were successful, indisputably successful signings. Now, considering that's 21 years, or tw- not 24 years we've been through, it's not great. We've got a lot of, lot of meh. A lot of players that were just kind of squad filler, signed for you know a variety of reasons. 15, 20. We've got 24 in the meh category, neither hit nor miss. Misses, we have 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. We have 28 misses. And flops, we have 10. We have, is a harsh on Van, it's harsh on Van der Howe, isn't it? And I think I've confused him with the other goalkeeper that they signed. With Taibi, I have, I have. Van der Howe put into, into miss, making that 29, which leaves us nine flops. Paborski, Bosnich, Taibi, Varon, Laurent Blanc, Cleberson, Anderson, Owen Hargreaves and Bebe. Owen Hargreaves, obviously not his fault, but he goes into that category. So, We've got 37 outright bad signings, 33 good or better signings, and 24, I think that is, my writing's terrible, Uh, 24 meh, neither here nor there. Now, Paul Tompkins has done a lot of work in this. And he says that most of his work was over this period of time that 50% of signings on average across the board were a success. Now, he may look at the signings I've labeled as meh and move them around. But I don't think that's a 50% hit rate for Ferguson. In fact, I think it's substantially below 50%. 50%. I think it's about 33%. What we have here is 94 signings, of which 33 were successful. It's just, just over a third of Alex Ferguson's signings in his tenure at United, not including the first couple of years. And unfortunately, I just don't have that information to hand. But if anyone does send it to me, it was probably a couple. Steve Bruce, I think, would have been signed in that period. Um, There's probably one or two others. But either way, his, his track record in the market wasn't incredible. It was good. But what he hit on were stars. You know, he hit on Cantona. He hit on Keane. He hit on Stam, Van Nistelrooy. Ronaldo, the biggest of all, Rooney, Vidic, De Gea, Van Persie, Rio. He hit on stars. 
transcendent players that could improve those around them. And that is what propelled United to the incredible success that they had. But Ferguson's greatness can't really be measured in the transfer market. I merely did this as an exercise to disprove a notion that he had signed an awful lot of great players. He signed 12 great players. 21 good players and lots of dross. I wanted to highlight the fact that Alex Ferguson was able to get the most out of little. Look at that last tightly one as an example. Rooney's past his best. Rio's past his best. Vidic's past his best. They've got a young goalkeeper. Not a very good squad. Carrick is towards the end at this point as well. Um, uh, Scholes is, is done. Giggs is more or less finished. And he still won a league title with them. So when people talk about Alex Ferguson and try and use him as justification for something in the transfer market, it's nonsense. It, it is nonsense. What Ferguson was great at was taking a player and making them more than they could have been under anybody else. That was the greatness of Alex Ferguson. People have said he bought titles, and he did spend a lot of money but he spent a lot of it badly. Now, like I say, the, a lot of the big boys, the Van Nistelrooy's, the Rooney's, the Rio's, 100% success. But, you know, Hargreaves was big money. Anderson was big money. Varon was huge money at the time. None of them worked. Ferguson didn't buy his success. He managed his success. He developed players. He took players from the academy. Young players, Lee Sharp was signed in 1988, so he was actually before I started doing this. Uh, Lee Sharp and Mark Hughes, obviously, I think you'd have to put in the hit range. Uh, Steve Bruce, obviously a hit. Um, Andy Jones uh, turned them down. Like it was, Their first few years were weird. Tried to sign Terry Butcher. Just a weird few years. Bruce... And, Sh- and Hughes obviously would go in the hits, as I think with Lee Sharp, all things considered, I think Lee Sharp has to go in there. But United didn't buy the success, despite people trying to claim that they did. What United did brilliantly, what Ferguson did brilliantly, was just drag every single inch, every morsel of talent out of other players. Trusted the academy, developed players, reinvented players and was just tactically good enough and his preparation, his motivation were so good that he won titles he shouldn't have won. That's the truth of it. Alex Ferguson won titles he shouldn't have won because of Alex Ferguson. And I think it's important that we always remember how great he was because oftentimes Players and managers from the past get overlooked and forgotten about. And I don't think we should ever forget how great Alex Ferguson was as a manager for Manchester United. I'm going to very quickly wrap up with some gossip. Chelsea are prepared to break the bank to sign uh, Erling Holland, uh, despite his 75 million buyer clause not kicking into the next summer. Dortmund are not going to sell, so that's a nonsense story. 
Paris Saint-Germain sporting director Leonardo insists the club remain keen on signing Lionel Messi. Um, I'm sure they are. I'm sure everybody else is. They may well get him, but I think they'll have to sign Aguero as well. PSG expect a decision on their bid to sign Deli Ali this week. I think it's a good move for him and a good move for them. He definitely needs away from Spurs and they could use a goal-scoring midfielder to uh, to improve what, what is a very journeyman midfield. Uh, Egypt forward Mo Salah is hinting he wants an improved contract at Liverpool, but the Reds have no plans to offer him a new deal at the time. Look, Dom King, I, I assume, has written that or somebody else to mail. They have no idea what Liverpool are planning to do with regards to Mo Salah. If he wants a new contract, they will probably give him one. AC Milan technical director pa- uh, Paolo Maldini says a loan move for Fekio Tamori is close, but could yet still fall through. Uh, that's a deal that would make sense. Tamori would, would be a good fit there. They, they do need a, a third centre-back. Ideally, they need a starting centre-back next to Ramagnoli because I'm no fan of Carr, but Carr has done well for them. But there's rumours there's going to be a bu- uh, an option to buy in that, and that would be a strange move from Chelsea, uh, one I wouldn't be all that um, keen on doing if I was them. Real Madrid have agreed a deal to sign David Alaba in the summer. That's from Marken. Now, uh, Christian Falk, who is the sports the, the, the editor at either Build or Sports Build, has come out and said that they, there's no deal in place. That is the favoured favored, uh, destination for him. They're the favourites to get him. But there are other clubs in the mix. Marka have jumped the, the gun on that one. Uh, Manchester United's England midfielder, Jesse Lingard, who's been linked with Spurs, West Ham, Marseille and Inter, is keen on a move, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is reluctant to let him leave. Why? He doesn't play. And you've got three other options in his position in Bruno, in Donny van de Beek, who you won't play, and in Juan Mata, who I think is is living in mothballs, who are all better than him. Just let the let the lad go and play football somewhere. Uh, manager Ralph Hassan, Hassan, Ralph Hassenhutl says life will go on if Danny Ings leaves Southampton for a bigger contract, a bigger club this summer, because the Saints cannot afford his contract demands. Yeah, they're right. It will. They'll get a big fee from him and they'll move on. Um, there are other Danny Ingses out there. Arsenal would need to offer up to fifty million to tempt Norwich into selling Emmy Bundy. Emmy Bundy is not worth uh, not worth the shade of fifty million. So that would be absolutely stupid if Arsenal did that. Uh, Derby County have angered Man City by blocking their attempt to sign Scott Carson on a permanent deal. Uh, the Championship Club want to collect a loan fee for the 35-year-old Englishman. Yeah, because Derby are broke and their takeover hasn't happened yet and they're at real risk of um, drifting into administration, unfortunately. Leicester are ready to challenge Arsenal, Roma and AC Milan in the summer for the signing of 25-year-old Brazilian midfielder Otavio, who is set to leave Portuguese side Porto when his contract runs out. He's a decent player. He'd be a good squad option for Leicester or Arsenal. Doesn't start or change the needle for or move the needle for them, but a good squad option. Galatasaray and Senegal striker Mabad Diang is on the list of strikers West Brom are interested in this summer. Oh, this month. Sorry, this month. Uh, they definitely need a striker with with Carlin Grant being out injured. They definitely need a striker. Talksport claimed that Andy Carroll is not on his list of targets. I have heard from someone again with a source at Newcastle that he is on the on the list. He is absolutely on the list and the move has already been made and just rebuffed because Newcastle don't want to sell him. So I'd imagine Big Sam, what he's done there is he's called his cronies at TalkSport and said, no, no, we were never interested because he's a little bit embarrassed that they got turned down. Uh, AC Milan and West Ham have inquired about Barcelona's out of favour Spanish left-back Junior Firpo. I would imagine that West Ham have and he'd be a really good fit there. AC Milan have Teo Hernandez who's one of the best left-backs in the world. I would I would suggest that's nonsense. West Ham have made a bid for 
Sevilla's Morocco forward Yusuf and Nesri. Talented, went there for big money, never really worked out. He's looked a little bit better of late. Uh, he'd be a good signing for West Ham at the right price. They just don't want to pay too much for him. The future of Jaden Sancho is unlikely to be resolved this month, but a move could materialise in summer. That's a nothing story from Sky Sports, who are pretty much a nothing organisation when it comes to sporting news. Um, Inter Milan have agreed to sign Udinese's midfielder, Rodrigo De Paul, who's been linked with Liverpool and Leeds. No, they haven't. That's that's nonsense. You've made that up. Tuto Sport, you are full of dung. Fulham failed with a surprise move for the former striker, Moussa Dembele, before the 24-year-old joined Atletico Madrid. Fulham need a striker. They need a striker badly. They need someone to add goals. They have to get it done or they're, they're going to go down. Get goals in, you might you might be okay. Don't, you're, you're in big, big trouble. You're already in trouble as it is. Crystal Palace are considering a bid for Mines French forward Jean-Philippe Matete. Um, talented, a little bit raw, could fit well next to Zaha up front. Obviously, the Batshuayi thing hasn't worked, so that's one that could make sense. Former Watford boss Vladimir Ivic is the frontrunner to take over at Sheffield Wednesday, although Doncaster boss Darren Moore has been considered. It's a bit of a poison chalice. I don't know if it's a good move for anybody, but Ivic had, was doing okay at Watford before he got the sack, and having moved to England, he might just want to stick around. Several clubs are monitoring Chelsea's 19-year-old midfielder Marcel Lewis, who's out of contract, but yet to agree extended terms. Very, very talented. I think a championship move is probably the best for him. Get a lot of game time. He'll come back up. He's got a good future, that kid. The Premier League will become the first competi- comp- uh, the Premier League will become the first competition to introduce permanent concussion substitutes for matches from the middle of the week. This is good. We've been calling for this for two and a half, three years. It's about time. Just make sure it's properly legislated. Manchester United remain confident that the Netherlands midfielder Danny Van der Beek will be a success, according to Edwin van der Sar, who is the chief executive at Ajax. Well, they'd, they'd want to be confident. They paid forty million for him. United have received interest in, from clubs about taking Dylan Levitt and Tendon Menji on loan until the end of the season. Don't know much about Levitt, but Menji's meant to be very talented. Um, Luton manager Nathan Jones says he would be keen to re-sign Brighton's former England under-21 goalkeeper Christopher Walton, who had a loan spell there in 16-17. Have at I, I don't imagine he's going to get many games at Brighton, to be fair. Uh, UEFA Chiefs are pushing ahead with plans to hold a climax of Euro 2020 at Wembley after being reassured at the scale of the UK's vaccination problem. If you're taking assurances from Boris Johnson, fold them up, put them in a bin and set the bin on fire. The man is a spoofer and a charlatan and should be run out of office at the earliest possible opportunity. That is it. That is the bumper two-footed podcast on Tuesday the 19th, uh, a little bit rambly. I hope the United, the, the Ferguson thing wasn't too much, but it was something I wanted to have a look at. If it was okay, let me know, because I do want to do it on Wenger as well, because um, I'm curious to see how they'd stack up. Um, and maybe Moyes, another one that had a long tenure in the Premier League, maybe look at him and how he did. Um, that's it. That's the show. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Foxhorn. Thank you to you for listening. Keep telling your friends. Keep helping the show grow. Much appreciated. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.